Good morning. morning. Welcome to worship here and happy Pentecost. Thank you to everyone who who wore your red today, your reds and yellows and oranges. Um, It is a celebration of the day of the the Holy Spirit came down and, and lit us on fire in a good way. Our scripture today comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. I keep asking that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those who believe, that this, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Blessed is the word, amen. As we uh, ready ourselves for our next hymn, Rejoice the Lord is King, number 288, I'm just going to put out a little call to those up in the nursery that we are going to be collecting the two-cent offering today. Um, So they may want to come on down for that right after this hymn. There's this Italian, um, you call him an educator or a a consultant, or just a farmer and a worker. Uh, But he, he became an expert on what we would call sustainable farming and sustainable economy. The idea being that we need to create systems in which people can take care of themselves and not rely on others outside. But of course, bringing in his education to bring him to that point. And and he tells the story that very early in his career, as he's had some success in his native Italy, that he would go and help the people of Zambia who had been dealing with many droughts and have been dealing with with, well, food shortages, food instability, we would call it. So he got down there with a team of other young Italians, and they looked around the area uh, near the Zambezi River and thought, I don't understand. This place is beautiful. It is full of, of great soil. It's dark and rich. It has plenty of water. There's a river right there. Sure, you shouldn't go swim in it. It's got crocodiles and hippos and whatnot. But it's there, full of water we can use. So they did as any good Italian would do and started planting tomatoes. And they grew amazingly. Between the 
the, the large and constant amount of sunshine and the water and the naturally rich soils, the tomatoes grew like, a, well, and grew into a bumper crop. And they also grew really large. He said, you know, back in Italy, we grow these plum tomatoes and they grow, you know, the size of a regular plum tomato. But the ones that we are growing here along the Zambezi were twice as big. They were so excited. They couldn't wait to harvest. They were slapping each other on the back saying, great job. We are such good people for coming down and showing them how to use their land in healthy agricultural practices. Then they got up the next day, ready to harvest, only to discover that there was no field. Actually, there was a field, except every plant was gone. And I don't mean just the tomatoes were gone. It wasn't like someone came through and stole the tomatoes. No, the plants were gone. And in their place were the footprints of 200 hippos who had come up out of the river and eaten every last tomato plant. One of the Zambians who was working with them said, yeah, and that's why we don't grow things here. Well, why didn't you tell us? You didn't ask. So I was thinking about graduation and Pentecost, and I know next week is graduation Sunday, but Pentecost goes with graduation. So I might talk a little bit about that. You know, Pentecost is a graduation in which the disciples go from being Jesus's students to those that carry Jesus's message out into the world. They become the apostles. I'm sure the name was used elsewhere, but here they really properly become the apostles. And it doesn't go well at first. It does, but it doesn't. I'm, I know we can always read the Bible in slightly different ways, take out different bits of the story and understand them. And, and this is one way of reading Peter's story, which I think, honestly, the more I read it, the more I'm convinced this is Peter's story. So we're going to follow him. Peter goes from being a simple fisherman to Jesus's right-hand man to being the man who runs away and leaves Jesus at the court and then being reminded by Jesus, at least in the book of John, that you are the rock upon which I will build this church. You are my new foundation. And so Pentecost comes. And they make that transition in which they are given the power and the authority and the energy. The energy and power to overcome the fear of everyone else around and begin preaching openly. And it works amazingly. It is a bumper crop of tomatoes. Thousands upon thousands of people hear his message and come flocking to him. Now, as we keep reading, we'll notice some strange things with Peter. First off, it starts to feel a little too brave, maybe. He starts preaching really quite openly in the temple. Not just preaching about who Jesus is, but also preaching against the, the priests, the people who killed Jesus. 
He starts healing people as he was directed to. But then he, we get to this point where people kind of treat him as even better than Jesus. They want to just stand in his shadow. If they can stand in Peter's shadow, surely then they will be healed, they come to believe. And while this isn't Peter's own doing, we also don't see Peter pushing back against this. Then, then he goes, I think, a little too far. He starts to kind of believe in his own authority. And that's where we get the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, who lie to Peter and the disciples about how much money they received from the sale of a, of a property, how much they were going to donate. And for lying to Peter, we're told that they die. And then Peter has their bodies taken out and hidden quickly. It's kind of a dark turn. Someone who seems to be thinking that he's the important one now and that everyone should be listening to him. He's in charge. And then we have the seven. These are the seven people that are called out to fulfill the role of the disciples in terms of serving others. Again, this can be a very positive story, and we always look at it as a positive story when we talk about the service of our deacons. But another way to read it is that the disciples were stepping back from Jesus' last great command when he was at the supper to serve one another. They were now going to concentrate on just preaching, on just managing. After all, everyone was bringing them their money now. They were the centers of this new organization. They didn't have time to serve others. They needed people to do that specifically. And soon after this, one of those servants, a man named Stephen, gets on the wrong side of a very powerful group of other rabbis. And for it, he is stoned to death, the first martyr after Jesus. I think this was a hippo moment. That's what we're going to call these, a hippo moment, where there was great success until they realized that maybe they weren't listening as well as they should have. Because we'll see a transition in Peter after this. All of a sudden, Peter is not talked about very much, very much at all. Is not talked about much anymore. Instead, we shift to following a few of these seven, and then it shifts on to Paul's story and brings him into it. And when Peter comes back, he is no longer the person sitting in Jerusalem directing the church. Instead, he has gone off to Joppa, where he is spending his time praying and listening and trying to hear the Holy Spirit and direct him. That's when he is then called to by the Holy Spirit to bring in Cornelius, the centurion, the first Gentile brought into the fold of Christianity. I don't know if he would have been able to do that before that moment. He was humbled. Humbled when he realized that he was not listening to the Spirit anymore and just doing things the way he wanted. And for that, Stephen lost his life. When Peter comes back to Jerusalem, he does not sit 
as the head of the church, but rather as one of its spiritual mentors. Instead, he allows James, and we call James the brother of Jesus, he might have been Jesus' little brother, to sit and rule the church. I say rule, but, you know, manage the church. Peter steps back and instead listens to the Holy Spirit and where the Spirit will lead him. God, disturb me is our prayer today. It's our final one, which seems unusual because last week we did send me. That should be the last one, right? But it doesn't end with being sent. Our prayer life doesn't end when we've received our mission in life. It's just the beginning. When you go there and you learn, when you actually hit the ground with your feet and have to work the work. You know, just like when we send our graduates out of school, school is not the end. You know, they go into the workplace or they go into higher ed or some kind of training program or whatever they do. That's not the end. It's just the next step. And they're going to fail more, just as any of us who has lived our lives have failed over and over again. And yet we learn and we get better. Just like Peter. We have to have the foundation we are standing under shaken from time to time to remind us that we may not be standing on Jesus, that we are standing on our ego, our rules, our dogma, our culture, our society, on whatever we decided was Jesus, but not really. And so I'll invite you to think of it a different way as you listen to the Holy Spirit. This is a story I've been wanting to tell, and I'm, I'm glad I can work it in today. And it takes place in Pittsburgh. I don't know if that's a bad thing or not here. I don't know. I'm from Steelers land. But it takes place in Pittsburgh in the 1960s. Now, for those of you who lived through the 1960s or pay attention to history class and whatnot, you'll remember the 1960s were perhaps not the calmest of decades. It was one full of tension, especially as the civil rights movement pushed against the rules and norms of our country to better achieve equality. But this story isn't exactly about that. It's actually about paramedics. Now, if you were born in the 1940s and 50s and you kind of remember what the system used to be like, you may remember that there was actually no such thing as a paramedic. They just didn't exist. We didn't have paramedics, we didn't have EMTs. If you had an ambulance service in your town, it was either run by the police or the funeral home. And that's not a joke. <laughs> That's really how it was. If you were in a car accident and someone called the police and said, there's someone who is lying out on the road bleeding, they were just in a car accident, either a paddy wagon would come to grab you, you know, the big police vehicles meant to hold several people. Sometimes they just throw you in the back of a cruiser. They actually had a specialized um, Station wagons for this purpose as well, the police station. So yeah, you could be rushed to the hospital in the back of an old Woody 
I am old enough to remember what a woody is, by the way. That's what I actually wrote into school sometimes. Anyway. Or the local hearse would come and pick you up. Because after all, they did have a nice place to sit you in the back. But they didn't give you any real first aid. Yeah, they might bandage something or a tourniquet, maybe. But just as often, people would also be injured. You know, someone would have a neck injury that was left unbraced or stuck up on a pillow while they're riding back. And I, I know we have some nurses in here. And I imagine you may be thinking, why would you put someone's head up on a pillow, rushing them off to the emergency room for all that neck damage or choking possibilities, which is what happened. 1966, the federal government put out a white paper in which they estimated 50,000 Americans died every single year due to poor ambulatory systems. That is 50,000 people every year. 2.5% of, of deaths every year in the United States was due to people being taken to the hospital in a poor way. Another way to put it, Vietnam happening at the same time. You are more likely to survive being shot in Vietnam than in the United States. That's how bad our system was. On top of that, as it often happens even today, depending on where you lived would really affect that. You lived in a poor black neighborhood or town, you were far less likely to get any help at all from the police or the local hearse. Now there were ambulances. They, they were generally privately run by hospitals. So there was one, the very first one was actually Cincinnati at what now is University Hospital. That was the first one in the United States. Number two was Bellevue in New York City. And they were run and operated generally by medical students. That was part of their rotation. And I know, I think it was Bellevue up until like the 1980s or so, they got $50 a week for that service. Sounds like very little, but I guess even in the 1980s, $50 was a fair amount more than today. <laughs> but most of the country had none of that. That's where a guy named Phil Halen comes into the story. Phil Halen was working in Pittsburgh. He had been one of the very few professional ambulance drivers in the country at this point. But he had actually come to Pittsburgh to run a medical uh, foundation. And he was looking around trying to figure out how to better the medical situation in Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh was one of the worst uh, cities in America when it came to medical help. It was like all the bad practices that happened in everywhere around the country all happened in Pittsburgh at the same time. There was one place, though, that especially disturbed him, known as the Hills District. Back in the 1930s, the Hills District was one of the most prominent and wealthy black-owned or black neighborhoods in the country. It actually had the 1937 champions, I can remember that, I can't remember the names now, Crawdads or something like that, Crawfords. The Pittsburgh Crawfords, they played at Greenlee Field, which is also the first black-owned and built baseball diamond in the country. But anyway, it was a center of black culture in the United States. But 
as suburbia was created following especially World War II and money moved out of the center of the city, it became a destitute land. In fact, people who lived there were considered unemployable, which meant you lived in poverty and you weren't allowed to get a job with anybody. No one would hire you. He wanted to help them. Now, he had a couple choices. He could jump in, just like that Italian person did, you know, jump in and say, this is how you're going to fix things. Or he could let them take the lead, take his expertise, take their expertise, and combine them into one. Now, at the same time, there was a group called Freedom House. Freedom House had started as an organization to train young men and women in jobs so that they might get work somewhere. Just try to hide your address, I guess. But they quickly discovered the problem was a lot deeper than simply training people, because if they still can't get jobs, what are they going to do? So one of the things they started was a mobile grocery unit. They took a big old van, and they filled it up with groceries, and they would drive it to different parts inside the neighborhood, open it up, and sell groceries for a discounted prices out. He thought to himself, this is Halen, he thought to himself, what if we approached ambulance services like that? Instead of relying on the police or the hearses who aren't coming here and serving these people, what if we start an organization like their... their uh, uh, their mobile grocery, in which private individuals form a company that helps people when they're needed. About this same time, he was also introduced to another man, Dr. Safer. Now, his name might sound a little familiar. Born in Austria, becomes an anesthesiologist, actually started the anesthesiology department in Lima, Peru, of all places, but hey, and went on to work in Baltimore and Pittsburgh. His name is probably more connected with, I can't remember the name of his partner, I think it was Galen. Uh, he and, and this other doctor uh, invented the Recessa Annie along with the procedure that Recessa Annie was designed to train people on. He was the creator of CPR. Now, CPR was only known by doctors and nurses. It was something that happened when you got to the hospital which was of no help when his daughter Elizabeth at age 11 had a massive asthma attack. The police officers who picked her up had no idea what CPR was, and by the time she got to the hospital, it was too late. And though he himself worked on her and resuscitated her, it was already too late for her brain. This, of course, angered and upsetted him quite a lot. He wanted to change things, and when he heard about this new private ambulatory service, he went to, um, he went to um, Hallen and said, here, I have this idea. Let us train these people so that they can save lives on the way to the hospital. He brought on a promising young uh, doctor. Her name is Dr. Caroline. I can't remember her first name. She has one of those double first and last names. They are both first names. But she and he started bringing in these young black men, giving them on-the-job training them, give, teaching them to be almost doctors. And all of a sudden, we had our very first paramedics. 
and we had our first true ambulatory service like we would recognize today. And it went from being, from this area being one of the most likely places to die if you, say, had a heart attack or something, to one of the places you were most likely to live in the United States if you had a medical emergency. They could do many things that even first-year um, doctor students could not do. They were just that good. And it continues to form the foundation of our modern paramedic and EMT services. Sadly, and I'll, I'll finish up the story with them, Freedom House became so good that they ended up having their budget slashed by the city when they contracted a little later with the city, and they later had it because the white neighborhoods couldn't understand why the black neighborhoods had this wonderful new service and they didn't. And so all of a sudden, all that money got shifted to new white EMT services around the city, and then, yeah. But it also worked in many ways. As I said, they had the best EMS services in the country, in that little impoverished neighborhood. And these young men who were first trained to be paramedics went out around the country and started more ambulatory systems. They also brought money and um, new projects back into the neighborhood, revitalizing the Hill District to be one that was much healthier than it once was. It wouldn't have happened if people didn't stop and listen. Didn't stop and listen to what the real problems were. Didn't stop to listen what real solutions could be. So often it is easy to just keep walking forward to believe that we have the answers. But sometimes we need the ground, as I said, underneath our feet to be shaken, to be reminded that we don't know all the answers, that no person here or in this world knows all the answers. And instead, be open to new solutions, to be open to new movements, and as Christians, to be open to the movement of the Holy Spirit that is here to direct us, to bring us closer to God and closer to the kingdom. God, disturb me. Shake me up on my path towards you. Shake me up on my path towards the kingdom. Keep me on my toes. Open my eyes to those things I refuse to see. Make me like those early EMT folks willing to set aside our preconceived notions of how things ought to be and instead listen to the way they should be. God, disturb me. Our closing hymn this morning is New Earth, Heaven's New, 299. If you could please stand as you are able. Over the last... This is week six. We have been doing dangerous prayers, which we can always pay lip service to, or we can mean it when we say it. And it's appropriate that we end today on Pentecost.
the day where we celebrate the Spirit's movement in our lives. So as we say this prayer, it will not be the last time, but it'll be the last time as a part of a benediction for now. I invite you to let go, to let the Spirit move, perhaps to hear something new, perhaps to take a new step as you leave this church today and let the Spirit take you where you need to be. If you'll pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.